1: that there is space for us to name it and also to say we don't have to just accept it as is. And then we start envisioning together, you know, what are the different things I maybe individually feel like I can do, but what am I gonna push the systems I'm a part of to do to, to make changes as well?
2: we are in the spirit of liberation for the communities we belong to and struggle alongside with that we're not in this fight for ourselves alone. So those five components are the main things, critical consciousness, strength and resistance, cultural authenticity, Radical hope and collectivism.
3: When I think about how I want to spend my energies, I'm like, does this vow, does this align with my values of liberation? Is this working toward liberation, particularly, of uh, Black folks, Indigenous folks, and people of color?
0: So when I when I think of the future and the continued work of our of our Psychology of Radical Healing Collective, um, I envision doing what what we did here in this podcast, right, which is come to the psychologist off the clock and and shake it up a little bit, right? Do things a little bit different. Um, And that is what radical is.
4: You're listening to Drs. Grace Chen, Brianna French, Helen Neville, and Hector Adamas, who together are the Psychology of Radical Healing Collective on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health.
5: I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High Denver, Colorado.
4: I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston
5: based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock.
4: If you're a psychologist, social worker, counselor, behavior analyst, MFT, physician, nurse, and more, and you really want to deepen your clinical skills, we highly recommend continuing education with Praxis. All four of us here on Psychologist Off the Clock have taken workshops through practice to enhance our learning and continuing education as psychologists. They have hands-on clinical skills workshops in ACT, CBT, compassion-focused therapy, and more, and online courses. So start learning now by going to our website, offtheclockpsych.com. And if you're interested in a live online course, you'll see a coupon code there for a discount. And some of the ones that are coming up are Fundamentals and DBT for Everyday Practice. There's also the ACT Immersion as an on-demand course with Steve Hayes, where you can log in and learn anytime. Check it out at our website, Mm offtheclockpsych.com. One of the drawbacks to COVID-19 and being on quarantine is that we don't get to see each other in person as much. But one of the wonderful benefits is that we do get to expand our relationships online. And I'm really excited that a workshop that I usually just offer here in Santa Barbara, I'm going to be offering online so that it's accessible to a larger community. And I'm going to be leading a workshop on committed action, making values-based moves, on Sunday, August 16th, from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m., and that's Pacific Time, through Yoga Soup. You can check it out at yogasoup.com. And we're going to be exploring how to take your values and turn them into committed actions, whether it's through social justice Uh, maybe you want to make a change in your health behaviors or maybe you want to show up in your relationships in a more values-based way we'll be doing some real hands-on experiential work together to put acceptance and commitment therapy into committed action in your life so join me i hope to meet some of you there and really looking forward to it check it out at yogasoup.com So today we have four of the six scholars that make up the Psychology of Radical Healing Collective on the show, and it was a real honor to have all of them on at once. And when I looked up the definition of radical in the dictionary, uh, it's an adjective that means affecting the fundamental nature of something. It is far-reaching and thorough. And in listening to this episode and the work that they're doing, you'll notice how far-reaching and how thorough it really is.
5: And, you know, can I just say to Diana that having four guests on at the same time is a pretty radical shift for psychologists off the clock. And I want to just take a minute to give you some appreciation for your willingness to step out of your own comfort zone to do that. And I think it was such an important um, and inspiring episode. And, you know, I loved learning about radical healing. And I loved when Dr. Adamas talked about it as shaking things up you know, that that radical healing is about shaking things up at the roots and really doing the work to excavate at the roots to shake things up. And that radical hope is a verb.
4: I also really appreciated how they give this important message at the end that taking action doesn't have to be perfect and that the they that imperfection is part of it. I know that there's things that I said that weren't perfect or right during the interview and lots of ways in which I'm working on growing and learning in this area. And I really appreciate that willingness and openness for us to step through the doors of imperfection, but just to keep on moving forward and moving in the direction of our values of really social justice and also radical healing in the therapy room.
5: Absolutely. I mean, there has to be a willingness to get comfortable with discomfort. And I think one of my other favorite parts was that I learned about the virtual club quarantine with DJ D nice <laughs> right after my kids were talking about wanting to have a dance party. <laughs> so who knew? Awesome. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, take a listen. We hope you enjoy this group as much as, as we did and find it as, um, profound as we did. Today, we have four scholars from the Psychology of Radical Healing Collective on the show. And in addition to contributing to academic counseling and training pursuits, the collective publishes a blog in Psychology Today, where they share a strength-based framework for radical healing and hope for identity-based traumas. And I'm going to introduce all of you in alphabetical order and your academic, their academic bios will be on our website so that we can link your name to your voice. I'm also going to ask that maybe you say hello and maybe share something about you that we wouldn't be able to find on your bios. So beginning with... Hector Adamas, he is a clinical psychologist and an associate professor of counseling psychology at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. He co-founded and co-directs the Immigration, Critical Race, and Cultural Equity Lab, and his scholarship focuses on colorism, racism, and Latinx psychology. Welcome, Dr. Adamas.
0: Thank you so much for having us. I'm really excited to be here.
4: And what's something about you that we may not find out in your bio?
0: Something about me, let's see. I love to dance. I love to dance and um, done it professionally as well. And um, now currently the classroom is my new dance floor.
4: Wonderful. And then we have Grace Chen, who is a licensed psychologist in independent practice in Menlo Park, California. Her clinical practice includes individual psychotherapy and support group facilitation. She also provides advising and clinical training and professional development for psychology doctoral students as a consultant. And her scholarship and service activities have focused on marginalized populations, mentorship, and professional development. Welcome, Dr. Chen.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here today. And what's something about you, not on your bio? Um, I believe I I grew up in Texas, and it was really hot there growing up. And now that I've been in California for a long time, I've been converted to the outdoor lifestyle. So I I really appreciate being able to hike um, pretty much year round.
4: We have Bianca French, who is a counseling psychologist and associate professor in the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at the University of St. Thomas. Her research has explored the sexual coercion and sexual scripting using a Black feminist framework, and her training interests focus on multicultural and social justice psychology. Dr. French, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thank you for having us. And let's see, something that is not in my bio um, is that I am an amputee. And so I'm trying to be active and in more nature with a prosthetic leg, which is exciting and frustrating yeah. at the same time. Yeah.
4: Thank you. Mm-hmm. And we have Helen Neville, who uh, actually was the first person that I contacted and was the, the woman that arranged all of us to get together today. And Dr. Neville is a professor of educational psychology and African American studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She is past president of the Society for the Psychological Study of Culture, Ethnicity and Race, and past associate editor of the Counseling Psychologist and of the Journal of Black Psychology. Welcome, Dr. Neville.
3: Thank you so much for having us. I'm looking forward to our conversation. It's going to be a lot of fun. And something different um, about me that might not be on my bio is that I've really been getting into forest bathing. Um, And so just really going out in the trees, taking it all in, and really seeing the curative and healing effects of that.
4: So some movement and nature lovers amongst amongst (laughs) the four of you. So, I think a good place to start is to just even break down the words of your collective, so the psychology of radical healing collective, and maybe we can begin with what you mean by radical healing, and then also what how it works as for you as a collective.
2: Radical healing was really dr. neville's um, brainchild in thinking through during her presidential year of uh, APA Division 45 and how social justice work activism in and of itself is healing, so how to heal through social justice. And so through that, the Dream Team or the Radical Healing Collective was created. So she found five of us, six of us in total, including Helen, to think through ways that we can create a psychology by and for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And so briefly, Radical Healing um, builds off of Sean Jenwright's notion of radical healing from his book, Black Youth Rising. And we see it as different from conventional healing in that we take a collective focus. And so instead of an individual healing perspective, we think about how our communities can heal from um, radically oppressive conditions and so the belief that radical times call for radical approaches and we integrate Black liberation psychology and intersectionality for that intentional focus. And radical healing, we conceptualize it uh, as sitting in a dialectic of both resisting oppression and imagining something better or future possibilities and that we need to be in both spaces at the same time um, because to be in just a place of acknowledging and resisting oppression can lead to a sense of maybe pessimism, but also we can't fight in vain. And so needing to believe that there's something better on the other side of that fight and resistance.
4: What does radical healing look like in terms of when you're working with people or, or communities? What are some of the main sort of pillars or concepts that, that you're working within? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So we see it as Uh, being comprised of five components. So first, critical consciousness, and so needing to be aware of the structural, historical, um, institutional conditions that created these inequities in the first place, as opposed to internalizing a negative sense of self, or, you know, I haven't met the quote-unquote American dream because of something I'm doing wrong, but really a critical understanding of where that came from. So really pulling on Paulo Freire's work around critical consciousness and that that leads to action and needing a sense of strength and resistance as a second pillar or component anchor to do something then about that awareness. So first being aware, woke enough to know the conditions that we're in and then having the um, sense of empowerment to do something about that and calling on ancestral resistance and knowing that we are the descendants of people who have continued to fight and resist and have a sense of strength to fight against some of the negative realities that we've been subjected to. The third is cultural authenticity and building on some of the psychology of uh, racial identity development and indigenous healing practices. And so resisting negative stereotypes about our own identities and instead of fostering a sense of positive self-worth and and um, self love. Also, recognizing from a psychological perspective that our communities, grandparents, and beyond have been healing, engaging in different healing practices long before Freud ever showed up on the scene. And so, believing that there is value in that, even if there isn't an entire textbook written on it or a whole course or field of study, but that we have what we need to heal ourselves and our communities um, if we go back to those indigenous roots. And a sense of radical hope that we a different reality is possible and um, to not lose sight of that is the fourth. And then the fifth is collectivism, that we are in the spirit of liberation for the communities we belong to and struggle alongside with, that we're not in this fight for ourselves alone. So those five components are the main things, critical consciousness, strength and resistance, cultural authenticity, radical hope, and collectivism.
4: I recently read about your collective, that you actually truly act as a collective, even in how you write for psychology today. And, I, and I'm wondering about how that that collective approach applies to you as a group, and then how you use that in um, in sharing your message. And maybe Dr. Neville, you could share on that as, as the founder of the collective.
3: Oh, sure. And I think um, that's such a great question and fun to kind of think about. When I think about the collective, I think about each of us has an equal say um, in terms of identifying the content, in terms of shaping the message, in terms of um, where we might want to go. And so, um, for example, when we write for the psychology of uh, today, our articles, we might pitch an idea and say, hey, I think this is happening in this current moment. I think we need to speak to this is there somebody um, who wants to write? So people will say, yes, I think it's important, and who would like to take a stab at it? And then from there, what we might do is have informal conversations among ourselves to kind of get ideas that people have about the particular topic, their evaluation or assessment of the topic. And then one of us will take the lead and incorporate the ideas and draft something and then share it with somebody else, Say hey. What do you think here? And then they'll build that further. And then we'll put it in like a Google Doc and begin to have a conversation. And then we sometimes have conflict or disagreements in terms of how we're thinking about things. And we'll have a conversation about that. Well, what is it that we really mean here? How is it that we would like to resolve this tension that we have? And sometimes we have to sit within the tension within our own group and how we want to move forward with that in terms of getting something published. So we work as a collaborative in our writing process, and our conceptualization process, and um, how we want to move forward. Um, even in terms of this particular opportunity to be on the podcast, you had reached out to me and it's like, okay, this is really a collective, a collaborative, let me turn it over to the collective and seeing who else would like to be part of this so that there's not one person who has ownership of these ideas. I think that's really important. And it also honors the fact is that when we think about knowledge production and we think about actions, it's not an individual thing, right? We don't create knowledge as these individuals. Knowledge is really created as a group. And by talking about as a collective and collaborative, that we are acknowledging that our work is truly based on, on, it's interdependent and it's based on all of our contributions and and I think that's that's the beauty of our work together. We really try to honor that.
4: Yes, it's certainly the first time that, in the over 150 episodes that we've ever had, we've had this many voices on the show. And uh, and in some ways, when I started reading about your work, I started understanding more why. And then it really changed my frame of mind around. Whoa! How are we going to manage, you know, all these different people and voices, and, and and I think which can be a barrier to to also really hearing lots of, of different voices and the richness of all of all of your voices coming together. And it shows in in your blog and in your um, in your work. Uh, so thank you for, for talking about that. And also, um, I think many people are also probably thinking about, hmm, how could this model be scaled in even a bigger way? So I, I'm I am curious. Your collective was formed a couple of years ago. And uh, recent events around um, the pandemic, the um, real stressful events around loss of jobs, stressful events in terms of police brutality, which has been ongoing, but I think is really, um, really heightened right now, have impacted, I think, a lot of what I'm reading in your work. And I'm, I'm curious, Dr. Chen, what have you experienced personally and professionally in terms of how has this shaped your writing and and your work as a collective?
1: Yeah, um, it's been really painful um, obviously uh, to continue to witness this um, violence and injustice towards black folks um, in particular recently um, and even the responses um, to these um, violent episodes. And and so I think that's just personally painful. it's, especially for our collective where we've been writing about these, and um, it, it's um, that's the upsetting part. Like we have addressed this issue, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago. And so it, I think it just highlights why there is such a need for healing. And um, I, I think what comes up for me personally and professionally is how do we continue moving forward the psychology of radical healing as an applied model? Um, And really being able to use it to help people heal because it's really overwhelming. Um, As you mentioned, like being in a a pandemic, people were already stressed. And so um, it's can be quite overwhelming for folks to feel like I don't know what to do about this. And this has come up in my clinical work with clients of color. It's like, okay, I've talked to you about experiences of racism, but I'm not sure if that was helpful. Like that. And my response is like, absolutely. It's like, do we just stop there? And so what I've been doing is trying to bring in elements of um, the radical healing model by helping them understand a little bit more awareness. I have pretty um, highly educated clients. And so sharing more information about racial identity development, kind of telling them there's actually a framework for what you're experiencing and then empowering them to feel more connected. I think one of the things that's come up quite a bit is the importance of community. So that collective um, aspect that Brianna was mentioning is really um, empowering for folks. So that's something that I feel like I'm seeing it happen in real time right now, and that we want to share this model even more so that people can understand that there's so many different ways to heal, and a big piece of it is connecting folks in community around these issues.
4: I'm wondering for you, Dr. Adama, since we haven't heard from you yet, how have recent events impacted you personally and professionally?
0: Yeah, I would echo everything that Dr. Chen um, just said. Um, Personally, it's, it's, it's been a struggle. It's a, a, a day-to-day struggle. Oftentimes, I tell my loved ones and family members that when I wake up in the morning, I have to decide what, I'm, what my day is going to be. Am I actually going to feel all the injustice, all the oppressions that, that's going on in, in the country? Um, that has always been going on in the country, but it's just complicated a little bit more now, right, with the COVID and um, the increasing killing of, of Black bodies right? Like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Nina Pop, right? Um, so personally, I have to make a decision, you know, today, am I going to try to compartmentalize a little bit, which I know in psychology, we say that's not healthy. But for many of us, that's the way we're able to then function through the day. And then some, some days then, you know, I'm like, okay, today, I'm going to feel all what's going on today. So for me, it's a daily battle that I have to kind of consciously wake up and think, what? How am I going to engage with the world today? And I don't think that experience is unique to me. I think a lot of um, folks of color, um, Black Indigenous people of color, have um, similar experiences. I'm assuming, you know. And then when I think about our collective work in the psychology of radical healing, it's like the ancestors were preparing us for this particular moment in history because we started this work a couple of years ago. I mean, even the article that's published in The Counseling Psychologist, obviously, we started doing that work even way before it was even published. So in many ways, I kind of go back to what I study, what I what I write, what I teach, what I work on with um, the wonderful, brilliant collective of of women that I work with, Um, and then think about, okay, how how can I stay grounded in right now in the present, right? Because that's a big component of radical healing. Oftentimes, um, think of it as a visual, right? There's a tug of war. There's this uh, rope, and on one end, what's pulling you is all the oppression, all the the systems of of, of inequities. Um, and then in 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 the other end of the rope, you have, you know, kind of let's let's not think about all the 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 inhumanity in that we're going through now. Let's just focus on. Dreaming. Let's just focus on the future. Let's not worry about, you know, how we're being dehumanized now. And living in either of those extremes are really not that um, feasible, right? And they and, and because in one we are not we're not honoring and being mindful with what we're experiencing, and in another one we're not even giving ourselves permission to breathe and dream and think and envision about our future. So radical healing. Is right at the middle and being able to balance that um, that tug of war. So I kind of go back to our framing of radical healing and apply it for myself, right, as a person, as a as a as a, as a man of queer uh, 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 African descent, and also queer, and um, and also as a you know as a scholar, as a mentor as a as an instructor, as a teacher.
4: Thank you. And I, I really appreciate um, just the movement. You're also a dancer. And so even how you describe that, you describe it as sort of this dance of moving in and out of the feelings and into the action and acknowledging all the identities that, that intersect in that process for you. I appreciate that. And I'm I'm curious for you, um, Dr. French, how do you how is how is recent events and maybe even we can talk about the pandemic because there's something about a, a collective that that, it, that involves communities and communities are being um, really impacted. People of color, communities are being impacted more by the pandemic and disadvantages around healthcare, mental healthcare, but also communities are being disrupted and, and broken up because we can't gather in the way that we've been gathering. So I'm curious for you, Dr. French, how can psychology radical healing be useful right now mm-hmm. in particular? Yeah, no, that's an important question, and um, certainly don't
2: have all the answers. I think, you know, mm-hmm. one thing I'm thinking about is how we can use the radical healing model and apply that to COVID 19 in communities of color. So, the resisting oppression is knowing the realities of systemic racism and how it has led to COVID 19 disparities, like uh, greater risk for respiratory illnesses in BIPOC communities. Uh, environmental racism, which then exacerbates those you know health uh, health disparities, the fact that frontline workers are disproportionately black indigenous and people of color there's limited resources for PPE um, and for social distancing, we are collective people so there's multiple generations living in our homes. My mom's house, for example, is three generations within it, so this idea of social distancing is um, a bit counter counterintuitive or a challenge but then not turning a blind eye to these realities and so i would you know so i see ways of the resistance coming up like resisting opening up too soon um, challenging who's going to be most impacted negatively. If schools were to open up, who's got the PPE, who's got the resources, what schools have the resources in order to do that safely. Um, and then I'm seeing all sorts of other ways of resisting, so like creating things by us for us. So throughout COVID and I'm this imagining something different, so I'm thinking about ways throughout COVID-19 um, that we've seen all sorts of black wellness popping up on social media, um, virtual meditation, virtual house parties, Club quarantine, right? With DJ Nice, for example. Um, side hustles being created because we're being disproportionately impacted financially, and people leveraging the strength and wisdom that they have to create uh, additional pieces of income. So, I'm seeing kind of all of that play out in a way uh, with COVID 19 and engaging in healing justice in a different in a different way, and that we are needing to be, you know, we are as we see with COVID-19, that what happens to the individual is is, um, going to impact the collective. And so the broad narrative of individualism that is so pervasive in the United States is getting spun on its head and drawing on ways that BIPOC communities have been interconnected and interrelated for generations. So this uh, deep need to care for each other um, and push against this individualistic focus is really apparent and obvious right now. So those are just some of the things I'm thinking of. I'm not a um, public health professional. Know to what extent the future, you know, how to other ways to resist kind of what's to come, you know, as the pandemic takes continues to grow and we see our leadership fail us tremendously, but I also see some pretty remarkable strength and resistance. I mean, the fact that people are showing up and showing out to resist in these racial uprisings, Um, max heavy, right? Like I'm in Minneapolis and I'm seeing the thickness of of resistance despite the pandemic.
3: Dr.
4: Neville, it sounds like you wanted to
2: Share
3: something. Like that. Yeah, I, I just loved what uh, Dr. French said. So diddle to everything that she said. And um, in addition to that, I, I I want to amplify the fact that we're in an opportunity where we are relying on, um, on the internet and online platforms, and we can actually use this to our advantage. And talking about radical healing, a piece of this, as Dr. French outlined earlier, was developing a critical consciousness. And so since so many people now are tuning in and relying on the internet for new information, this is a great opportunity for us to educate the public about what's going on and to provide a critical analysis about the, about the core issues that we're confronting at this moment, which is absolutely critical. And there um, there is amazing podcasts that are already doing this. I know that um, Kimberly Crenshaw's Intersectionality Matters is doing has the Under the Black Light series that's doing a great job of this. And so we really need to seize this moment to really fine tune and educate people about anti-Blackness, white supremacy, capitalism, the core things that are really um, accounting for our struggles at this moment. And so I I wanted wanted to make sure that I added that to the things that Dr. French was already saying. And
4: you've created as a group, a syllabus, a psychology of radical healing syllabus where there's a tremendous amount of resources both multimedia so you can look at the syllabus and just click on the video and watch it right now and then also resources that you can like systematically go through different topics that are involved in radical healing i wonder if you could just speak briefly to that cuz i think that could be something we could link to that could also help people in this in this process
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we created the psychology of radical healing syllabus. And um, what we really want wanted to do and continue to do is that we really want to give um, the psychology of radical healing away, right, we really wanted to give it to the public. Um, and what I mean, or what we mean by giving it away is that we really want to make the work accessible, not just to academics and researchers and clinicians, but also just to everyday folks who um, are not necessarily in the academy, who are not necessarily, quote unquote, professionals, or have other professions. So we really wanna, uh, wanted to find creative ways to make the work accessible and also, um, it being delivered in multiple in multiple medias mediums right so we have art we have videos we have documentary music we have researchers for folks who like that we have theory we have practice we have a little bit of everything so it's like the radical healing buffet right when you go there you get to have a little bit of everything and and share it with folks and we also made it accessible right so that anyone could just have access to it who have access um, to the internet. And that was a lot of fun putting together um, because what we all did was, again, applying the radical healing model was we we dream. We started dreaming, right? We started envisioning if we were in graduate school or what would the syllabus look like? And we all put our kind of wishes and our dreaming into the syllabus. And that's really how it came together. And then, of course, we like to have opportunities for the um, upcoming generation. So we invited one of uh, a current undergraduate student who just made it look all jazzy and nice and artistic and, you know, um, just absolutely um, appealing for the eye as well.
3: It's a
4: beautiful uh, document. Yeah, <laughs> that's the first, the first comment when I shared it with our partner. He's like, "Whoa, that's a beautiful document. <laughs> Yeah, but thorough, very thorough. Yeah. So um, Dr. Neville, you uh, mentioned some of the work by Dr. Crenshaw about um, intersectionality and you and your blog post did a, a, a post. I think the post is actually at say, say our names. Uh, and you also mentioned at say her names in response to um, the killing of Brianna Taylor and really sort of how in a critical and central way, right now, intersectionality is showing up uh, for, in particularly, Black women who are getting impacted in a disproportionate way in terms of the stressors of COVID, the stressors of um, uh, racism, and the demands um, on them. And I'm wondering if Dr. Neville, you can speak to that that post, and also speak to intersectionality in, in, as in general.
3: Right. Yeah. Um. I think that's a really important question. Right before all of the uprising, right before the murder of uh, George Floyd, we see things kind of bubbling and percolating to the surface um, in terms of anti-Blackness in particular. So of course, you know, weeks before we learned about Breonna, Breonna Taylor and her uh, murder, you know, she's sleeping in her bed, the police on a no-knock warrant, shot um you know fire shots into a room killing her but what we know now is that they let her sit for upwards of 20 minutes without attending to her health her physical health to see if she was okay that's outrageous so we see that we see some other killings and then right before the 25th may 25th when george floyd is is murdered um the new york times uh, um publishes this really profound um, um, editorial article on mourning in black communities. And what it talked about was the heavy toll that COVID-19 is playing in black communities in terms of black folks disproportionately dying. Um, But that just kind of ripples out in terms of Black women and particularly are impacted because they are the ones that are holding the families together. They're the mothers, you know, that are losing their sons, but they also have to attend to the emotional kind of needs of the family. Um, and they're the caretakers and how COVID-19 is exacerbating the stress of caretaking and particularly among poor and working class Black families. Um, and so you, you just have that in the face of it. And in that article, it presents data where Black folks aren't being tested in New York. And when they finally do get tested, it's almost too late because then they're dying and they're dying. You know, it just is, it's a lot. It's a lot adding and adding to it Um, and so when things blow up and people are really demanding kind of change what seems to be lost there is the unique positions that black women are faced and our pain and our suffering is often erased for this larger picture and as we've been talking about kimberly kentral and her um intersectionality theory and the work she's doing with intersectionality matters and the African-American Policy Forum really highlight the importance of underscoring Black women's voices Our experiences, not to erase that, because many times our stories are assigned to like a historical footnote. And what that means is we don't then evoke the same um, empathy um, for us and our plight, the same emotion, the same kind of mobilization. Um, So, yeah, um, in terms of intersectionality matters, in terms of our mourning process, who's impacted the most during the COVID 19? um, it also in terms of child care. So we know that for all women have been impacted, especially working mothers have been impacted a lot by COVID-19 in terms of who's taking care of the children, who's schooling the children, who's, you know, and those that have been impacted most are Black women because we have so many other community responsibilities that we are um, need to attend to. And so, it's a um, intersection, uh, intersectional lens is important to look at not only who's being killed, um, not only who's being disproportionately impacted, but also in terms of how we think about healing and moving forward, and telling our stories is a piece of it because it allows us to name what is the ills that are impacting us. Thank you.
4: And and I also think of intersectionality as a as a source of strength. And um, source of meaning. One of the pieces of your work that struck me was talking about radical hope. And is that a, a sort of a key um, component of radical healing? And I'm wondering if Dr. Neville, if you can speak to that of how you find radical hope, especially during times like these.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and I want to build on some of the things that Dr. Adamas was saying a little bit earlier about the importance of hope. And I, I'm so glad that you asked about that. And I'm thinking about some um, work like Julia Alvarez has talked about the importance of hope. I recently um, listened to a panel by the Association of Black Psychologists and National Association of Black Social Workers. And hope was really described in both by Julia Alvarez and in that panel discussion as a way for us to kind of think through, get through the now while we are preparing for the future and we really owe it to our uh, children and the next generation to be hopeful. Can you imagine what would happen if our grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers have lost hope? Um, The idea with this uh, radical hope is not just, um, there's gonna be a better future for me, myself, Helen Neville, but there's gonna be a better future for our communities and our world. And one of the things is we've thought through and also began to unpack, well, what does radical hope mean Um, and how is it and why is it important? What are the key pieces? And I would just like to kind of highlight some of those, if that's okay. Um, So piece of radical hope is this notion that um, when we think about hope, we're usually future oriented. But because we all come from collectivistic societies in terms of where we're working at, we both think about the past, our current moment, as well as the future in understanding hope. So it's not just oriented to the future. It's the fact that we can look back to the past to see how our ancestors have survived in order for us to get answers for the future. And so a piece of the the radical hope then is really understanding our history of oppression and resistance. So it's not just oppression, but we have overcome or been through um, land displacement, uh, attempted genocide or genocide, um, um, slavery, um, denial of our basic human rights through a whole range of forms throughout history and even contemporary and our ancestors had played a role not only surviving that, but pushing changes in the United States so that they could be a more democratic place. So really understanding this notion of resistance, and, the, and we have a long history of that. And so we can look to our ancestors, the, um, the strengths that they had, their victories, as well as, gee, are there some uh, things that they didn't quite do right, that we can actually use as we move forward. Another part is um, that's kind of related to that is also having a sense of pride in who our ancestors are, uh, were. Um, their accomplishments. This notion, then, we know there's lots of literature that talks about the importance of pride um, in our history and the, uh, the role that that plays in our psychological well-being. So those are important. But in terms of also looking toward the future, there is a couple of other co- uh, key components. One is this idea about envisioning possibilities and been doing some reading, even uh, Adrienne Marie Brown, if anybody has read her work, but in her work, Emergent Strategy, one of the things that she highlights um, in there is like all the ways that we've been socialized to things that we can't do or shouldn't do or things that lock us in. And one of the things that she talked about as being socialized uh, around is we're really good at understanding um, that what is possible. We're less good at socializing and helping us create what is impossible. And I think envisioning this possibility is important for instilling hope. Um, since I'm an old, a lot older than all of the folks in, um, in our conversation now, I don't know if you all remember, but I remember all of the anti-apartheid movement and activities and people would say, oh my gosh, it'll never end in my lifetime. And then like within two years, right, of when I was thinking about this, it ends almost abruptly. It was a surprise for a lot of folks, although it was um, built on decades of struggle, the transformation came so quickly. And I always hold that in terms of what is possible now. The transformation can come quickly. And now all of these uprisings that we're having, these changes that we're moving, this is an opportunity for us to create additional changes. So we should always be thinking about not what is logically possible, but what is impossible that we can make possible. And let's envision that. And that's um, also related to ideas of meaning and purpose and the notion that this radical hope um, as we as individuals um, hold meaning of contributing to society. That's our goal and our purpose. Like we are in service of other people and that can contribute to this hope. So the notion of radical hope is different because it embraces a sense of collective and it moves beyond the individual.
4: I love that. And I'm, I'm curious, many of our listeners are mental health professionals. And I'm wondering what that would look like in the therapy room. How you would bring that up? How would you address the um, imagining the impossible in in the therapy room?
1: Well, I think it's um, it's all within the the holistic aspect of radical healing. And um, what I've seen is, you know, a big part of what empowers folks to imagine kind of the the impossible, if you will is um, all of these elements we've been talking about today. So just the critical consciousness and putting that within context. So um, I have clients who are talking about from their own individual experiences of you know, microaggressions and racism. But then when we put it into this larger context, I think um, the current racial uprisings, it's really giving voice to folks who felt like they haven't been able to talk about it openly. And so then that kind of, empowers them to speak up. And the more we talk about it in session, I check in with them about, you know, this seems really important to you right now. Do you mind if I share some information? So I share elements of radical healing with them in terms of like, yeah, when we know our history, that really gives us more information and empowers us to figure out where we would like to act and, and take um, more action. So I have folks who are speaking up more at work, really thinking about how do they use their power within their workplaces because they're like, you know, this is the time to really start calling things out. And, you know, they are envisioning that things can be different. And so they are now putting um, their energy in that direction because they feel more hopeful because we've given voice to them. Um, The other way I've seen it is um, during COVID um, like Dr. Neville mentioned that the virtual space actually has created more opportunities in some ways more access to therapy. You might have seen this yourself, um, Dr. held this sense of um, people are just more willing to log on to um, therapy online. Um, and I've actually seen groups forming. Um, so early on in COVID, there was a lot of, well, there still is a lot of anti-Asian racism happening. And so um, several of my Asian American therapist colleagues have created these support groups for Asian Americans who have really been feeling isolated, isolated, um, but also feeling anxious uh, about racism on top of COVID itself. And so those spaces, um, I've sent individual clients to those spaces. They have felt that that's been very healing in terms of getting into the collective. So again, it's that feeling of community that makes a difference, and then it gives them hope, and then it continues the conversation, right? That there is space for us to name it and also to say we don't have to just accept it as is, and then we start envisioning together, you know, what are the different things I maybe individually feel like I can do, but what am I going to push the systems I'm a part of to do to, to make changes as well?
4: Yeah, thank you. And yes, we had um, Dr. Sandra Matar on the show a couple of episodes back, and she talked about how the attendance rates for when she's working with refugees, um, they've gone up. Since going to an online um, format and and a lot or, or actually a lot of phone as well, and how that it really is reducing a lot of the barriers to to coming into therapy, and I think one of the barriers that that can show up in the in the therapy room in itself is um, an understandable sort of mistrust of what's going to happen in there with my therapist and is it a safe place for me to be able to talk about racism or my experiences um, or my culture? And I'm curious if uh, one of you could speak to that of how to bring race and culture and racism and um, oppression into the therapy room in a way that is most effective and helpful.
0: So I think, so your question is, how could we bring that into the therapy room, into the session, right? And I would say that it's always there. We don't need to bring it in, right? And I think that's something really important that I try to um, help my own students as I I train um, students who want to be therapists, um, that it's not something that we could leave out in the door. It's not something that we welcome in. It's something that's always there, right? The question is, are we paying attention to it or not? And sadly, most of the times we're not because it's so uncomfortable to talk about racism and to talk about race, even though it's the elephant that's right in the room. It's that third eye, right? If you think about the third or the third ear that's in the room, right? It's, it's always there, but oftentimes we're not trained or feel comfortable uh, or feel we're not going to do it perfectly. And then we don't bring it up and we don't address it. And um, I, I venture to say that that actually um, stunts the growth and the movement of, of the work that we're doing with other people. So it's, it's always there. The question is, are we as, as you know, mental health and healthcare providers, what are we going to do to address it? So I always like to um, recommend for clinicians to say before it always starts with us, right? We need to look at ourselves. Um, We need to understand what's our own relationship with race and racism, right? Um, It starts with us. It's never going to be comfortable, right? No matter what color you are, no matter what your background is, it's always going to be uncomfortable. If if we're going to wait for a a time or a period for it not to be uncomfortable, we're just never going to address the elephant in the room, right? And I think it's really important to kind of say that and lean into that discomfort. Um, And also be ready to screw up, be ready to not do it right, right? It's better to not do it right than to not do it at all. But what's really important is how are we going to address when we are doing the therapeutic dance and I stepped on your toe. Let's talk about how I just hurt you by what I said, by what I miss, by what I'm not saying. Right, And that's really then where we'll be able to have a dialogue and where clinicians are then able to put welcoming mats and help the clients understand I, this is a place we could talk about this. And this is a place where you could tell me that what I just did, did or, or say, it was hurtful. Mm-hmm. And, how and how am I reenacting and recreating what happens in society right here between you and I? Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this it's about my stuff, your stuff, and then our stuff. And oftentimes we don't focus on our stuff and my stuff mm-hmm. in therapy. And racism is all of our stuff. Thank I
1: you. Just, oh, yeah. hi. And uh, this is great. Dr. I Chen. Just- yeah, I just want to reiterate what Dr. Adamas is is commenting on, is it's so much about what the clinician is bringing into the room and what our own awareness is. Because um, when I was thinking about this topic, it's really what's the racial identity of the clinician? So not only how we identify racially, but what's our racial identity in terms of how we have really thought about race, our own race psychologically. Um, so uh, Dr. Janet Helms would be the resource for those who wanna learn more about racial identity development models. Um, I think it's really important. They're, they're There are ways we need to signal to the client that this is a space that we want to talk about racism, oppression, um, privilege, all these different topics. And if you're in private practice, I would say one of the things is like, what do you have on your website? What do you have in your marketing materials that indicates that I don't shy away from these topics? In fact, I really bring that as part of the context And so when clients come to me, I've already put that all out on my website, for example. Um, and we, we talk about, it's like, well, what drew you to wanting to talk to me? And it becomes part of the conversation of like, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a salient aspect in terms of race or culture, but, um, it becomes this, this matters because it's a relevant part of my lived existence. And so how do we signal to them that this is a space for it? So, um, that's one, one way to do that. Um, but also when people are kind of referencing things, but they kind of keep going. So um, let's say I've had a white client kind of mention like, oh, I feel really bad. What's going on? I'm starting to think more, you know, how can I make changes to be more supportive of black folks um, that I work with, but then they keep going in their conversation. I'm like, whoa, let's slow down. Cause I feel the anxiety. I'm sensing the anxiety of bringing this topic up let's slow it down it's okay to you know and just really start talking about it directly um and again maybe providing some education not no judgment just saying like it sounds like what you're talking about is this and let me help you understand maybe here's a different perspective to consider and so addressing it directly when I see like there are these nuggets that they're they're signaling I want to talk about this but I don't know how um, then we really want to take those opportunities to be really supportive, but also say like, Hey, let's slow down and just hop on that. You know, yes. I, I picked up on that. And as a clinician, you know, those moments when people are, they're dropping little crumbs, <laughs> they're not quite sure how to, to bring something up. And we, we need to not be afraid to approach those conversations.
0: I also think it's important to pause. So I completely agree with Dr. Chan. Um, Currently, just because of everything that's going on in the country right now, also some of my clients want to go into action. What what can I do? And this is what I want to do. And it's more like going into action or doing things is actually a distractor from what the problem is right now. We need to understand ourselves. We need to sit through the pain. What does it mean for you, right? As a client before you go into action and trying to solve it. Um, and I think that within itself could be very therapeutic for. For any client, whether it's a white client who is suddenly having an awakening moment and wants to just go out and be a leader. And it's like, whoa, wait a second, how, how is that? Are you reenacting whiteness by taking a lead? Wait a second, slow down. Let's, don't worry about doing anything. Let's focus. What does it mean for you right now to be a white person? Or a person of color, right, who just wants to go out and do, I wanna go do this. It's great, but let's also process what does it, what, what does it mean to be a person of color right now? What does it mean to be a a queer Black woman in today's society right now? So that when you go out there to do action, then you are a little bit more intentional, planful, and better equipped to take care of yourself as you're doing the activism work. Mm -hmm. So pausing, slowing down is really important before. People just want to go from zero to 60 and just do. And I think we as clinicians have a, 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 you know, we have the, the... the opportunity to help give people permission to slow down and that they don't have to jump into actions right away.
3: Thank you. Also, as we continue on, um, or if you would even entertain this question, you were really concerned about how this was going to go and how the flow would be with so many people. I had just wanted to turn at the tables and ask you what the experience was like for you the first time i um, doing an interview with four people as opposed to a one-on-one interview. So I don't know if you would entertain that toward the end or not.
4: But. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in any time that I'm doing an interview, I have trying to manage eyes in and eyes out at the same time. And so it's like, like I said, it's, um, I'm not agno- like sort of just noticing my own eyes in and my own um, wanting, as you described, Hector, like wanting to go in and and manage things and, um, also stepping back and listening and actually just trying to take in as a, as a listener (laughs) and then, um, and then also just aware of everyone. And like, is everyone's needs getting the therapist helper? Is everyone's needs getting met? Is everyone having an equal amount of say? And so, um, I'm juggling all of that and I appreciate you, Helen, for, for, um, bringing that up. And I think that, right, that's sort of the, um, when you were talking about in therapy, stepping into spaces that are uncomfortable, leading up to this podcast has been very uncomfortable. And um, in terms of uh, just my own process of um, not just this podcast, but like for many people over the last number of weeks, looking at art, looking at ourselves, and pausing. And what I've done as a therapist that has stepped on toes, and what I continue to do as a therapist, and even just as my continued um, understanding grows, I see more and more. And so um, I think that there was a big um, wake up call to us for white psychologists leading a podcast. And we've done, uh, you know, I think majority of our hosts have been white experts. And um, it, had, it was something that we, um, are taking a look at deeply of like why why is that the case so i'm I'm curious um, as you're talking about Dr. adamas, what happens in the therapy room is what happens outside of the therapy room. How do you um, you know address sort of these same kind of approaches into conversations that people are having about race It feels like if we're having a conversation right now, whether you're at the beach or you're talking to your uh, cousin, you're talking either about COVID or race or probably both. <laughs> and, um, and I'm, and, and sometimes those conversations get quite heated and I'm wondering how you, how you navigate um, sort of these hot moments in a way that, so that they are productive and uh, that um and actually, produce change as opposed to just getting uh, either caught in heat or um, avoiding them altogether?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So, I'm, I'm gonna free associate out loud, right? Because when I think of, of, of heat and that it's a hot topic, I'm like, it's hot for who? Right? Because for a lot of us, folks of color, we don't, we, we're used to the heat, mm-hmm. we're used to the warmth. You know, for us, the heat, the warmth, the hotness is not necessarily something to shy away or run or want to run away from. Um, so, and I think it's just because of the way you know we're socialized and the way we're treated as Black, Indigenous, and people of color in this particular country. Um, and, and what we could also say around the world. Um, so I just kind of wanted to kind of put that out there, right? Um, in terms of, you know, that it's a hot topic. Um, because whenever we enter a room, we are. The fire, right? And um, you know, and and then there, the whole dynamic starts going from there. So we don't have the option to turn that off, um, regardless of where we may be in our racial identity as people of color, right? So racial identity is just the lens that we use to interpret the world, um, the, the racialized world, um, and. Um, you know we, we have to decide it. am i am I going to engage? Are we going to go? know you know, I, you know I, I talk with a lot of friends. We know how our conversation is going to go when we 're going to have a cross racial dialogue you know within within the first two seconds, I know what people 's likely rebuttal is going to be, or how they 're going to derail the conversation or say well i don 't see it as race. I really see it more as a social class issue, right." Um, and suddenly, folks become so creative in coming up with other terms to discuss or to deflect talking about race, so oftentimes that 's how they try to um, we all try to diffuse the heat <laughs> uh, when it when it comes to races. We try to find creative ways to not talk about it, and um, you know whether it 's talking about gender, talking about class, talking about sexuality right and then we kind of think about it as these silos without understanding where, well you know there's there's gendered racism there's gender sexuality right that that everything is kind of overlapping and it's really difficult to tease all those pieces apart
3: can i s- jump in here go ahead Dr. Cole. i just i loved what uh dr adamas was saying and as you were talking dr adamas what i what um also struck me was like, um, hot for whom? So not only like we're always in it, but the notion of who is it hot for? So for example, when race is not talked about, that becomes highly uncomfortable for people of color because they then, um, their experiences are being silenced or ignored or not attended to. So the notion of not talking about race is the norm, but it's really designed to protect white people, to protect their feelings, to protect them not digging into the concept. And it's at the expense often at the expense of people of color. And so, and as I was hearing Dr. Adama's talk, it just got me thinking about the question itself. Um, Is the question of what do white people say to other white people um, Mm -hmm. when they talk about race? Is it what white folks and um, people of uh, black, indigenous and people of color? how that talks, or is it a conversation among Black, Indigenous, people of color, the same ethnic group, or a cross-racial group? And I think it can be hot on a number of levels, and how you deal with it will depend on that dyad or that group level. But just to let you know, um, um, it's harmful to people of color when race and racism is not directly addressed at any level. And I think that's really important to highlight. That
4: was, that was a wonderful um, exploration of how uh, even just my view comes into the, comes into the question as a white woman, right? Because I'm thinking about my conversations um, that I've been having. So as we, as we're closing our conversation today, I'd love to hear from all of you about what your hopes are for radical healing as both a collective and your work.
1: This is Grace. I was going to speak from maybe from a more personal perspective. Um, I think one way I am trying to develop more radical hope and healing is um, just the way I raise my children Um, and having them know their history um, from a critical lens, um, even though they're elementary and middle school age, they, they, they know the history, um, And for me, again, it's like having knowledge about our own um, history is really empowering and important. Um, And then in my professional work, really applying the radical healing model um, in the things I'm doing is giving me more hope because I see how it is empowering my clients. Um, Also the community, I talked with um, some college student activists recently about self-care um, these are Asian American college students who um, are doing social justice work and really helping them understand this um, framework was very empowering for them because they're like, I'm already tired and I have classes. And so we want this work to be sustainable and really um, going to Audre Lorde's quote of self care as self preservation. I think that really resonated with them. And so I think the more. I feel like our collective can share this psychology of radical healing model. That gives me hope because it's really been empowering for folks to feel like, ah, this is this really reflects my experience. And it's helping me hold that dialectic between, you know, really seeing how we're trying to resist oppression, but it's not just surviving. We're also trying to thrive. And that there is wellness and joy that comes out of our collective experiences too. So that's what's giving me hope is that just seeing the impact of um, our work together as a team has really moved me to continue to to try to figure out how to use this work in, you know, my own personal spheres. Thank you. Awesome. Um, I enjoyed
3: listening to that, Dr. Chin. I just like to chime in here too, as I really feel like it's part of, um, Really incorporated into my day to day work of thinking about healing and uh, my thinking about parenting and grandparenting and highlighting my research. So, just thinking about day to um, day and this broader project, um, one of the things that was talked about earlier was this notion of giving it away, hoping that other people, it resonates with other people and they can take. Um, take the kernels of it, what applies to them. And so I think like participating in this podcast and other things to educate people about radical healing so they can have their own interpretation of it and do something with it. I think that's engaging. But I also find myself like in my grandparenting um, stuff, we have a 13-year-old granddaughter who lives with us. And during the wonderful COVID-19, trying to find creative um, activities for her to do while we are quarantined, And in um, in work with her, really, um, we devised a a a project for her to do uh, four generations of uh, generating um, doing interviews with four generations of people in her family but it's about Blackness and about activism, and she recorded it and cut it down, and she created the questions, the interview protocol, but it really was a lot about these aspects of racial socialization, cultural knowledge that we talked about, and so a lot of impetus came from our kind of work. And then the other thing is just really prioritizing the work that I do, both in my research and my activism. For a while, I've been thinking about changing my lab name, the lane. so now we're the Liberation lab, and we are all about everything liberation, which is a lot of radical healing. And so when I think about how I want to spend my energies, I'm like, does this vow does this align with my values of liberation? Is this working toward liberation, particularly uh, Black folks, Indigenous folks, and people of color?
4: Thank you, Dr. Neville. I think these
2: reflections have been making me hopeful and of themselves. <laughs> so that's, that's, part of the beauty of the collective is how we we build and feed and grow from each other. Something that also is, that the, that the radical healing model is um, giving me is recognizing that it feels like we're at a tipping point personally for me. And so how, kind of like Dr. Neville was saying, this, might, this broader movement is leading to something something better and different and how I can um, foster that and encourage an authentic, unapologetic way of showing up whole in that movement, if that makes sense. And so uh, building on the strength of the people that have come before me and that I do not need to modify, adjust, temper, silence, myself in, a, in any certain way to get to the uh, to and, and encouraging my students the same and my nephews and nieces the same to be unapologetically them and however that however that looks and not feeling like I need to assimilate in order to uh, couch something in a more palatable, recipe, so to speak. So so that's feeling like there's a movement towards that. Like Black Indigenous people of color are leaning into their strength and their power and their wisdom in really incredible ways. That's giving me hope and, and healing.
4: Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Adamas.
0: Yeah, so when I when I think of the future and the continued work of our of our psychology of radical healing collective. Um, I envision doing what what we did here in this podcast, right? Which is come to the psychologist off the clock and and shake it up a little bit, right? Do things a little bit different. Um, And that is what radical is, right? Radical is about getting at the roots of something that's established and shaking it up at the roots so that it could actually grow, expand, and be a little bit different. And collectively, what we need to do, I think, as a field of psychology and in any other field is to actually do the hard work of excavating and getting at the roots and shaking things up. And that, for me, gives me not just hope, but it gives me radical hope. And for me, radical hope is a verb. It's about action. It's about doing. It's not just a noun. And um, that's what I hope I'll be able to continue to do with these wonderful group of of folks that the universe has blessed us all to be together with each other.
4: Thank you. And we do appreciate you coming on to Psychologists Off the Clock and shaking us up in in lots of different ways. At the beginning, um, I mentioned that this is the first time we've had this many voices on the show and um, my own anxieties about that, not only about anxieties about having many people on the show, but my own anxieties about just really not having the knowledge and expertise around racism and around um, its impact in the work that I do and being such a beginner and learner in this process. Um, And it's really um, been an honor to hear From all of you and the weaving of both um, your academic expertise, your personal experience, and then your life's work um, and how you're applying it with each other, with yourselves, with your families and um, in the people you work with. And I appreciate all of you for taking this time and we'll definitely link to you as a collective your work in psychology today and some of the publications that you've um, created and thank you so much for for being on the show thank you dr chen thank you dr french thank you dr adamas and thank you dr
1: neville for um being here today thank you so much thank you thank you for having us
4: Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon.
5: You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Katherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our web page, offtheclockpsych.com.